Okay, so uh, hello and welcome to the Shade Supreme Chicago podcast. Uh, I'm Juanita Garcia. And my name's Bryant Williams. I'm the uh, Dr. Watsons to, Char- to uh, Juanita's Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and um, I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Anthony Gore. Hi, my name is <laughs> Anthena Gore. I am the lead strategist for Environmentalist of Color right now, and I'm glad to be here. Yay! Thanks for <laughs> thanks for being here. We, you know, I was really excited when you agreed to do the episode. So, yeah. so um, I'm gonna ask you a question that we ask pretty much everybody. It's like, how did you get into the environmental field? Like, what was the steps that you took to get here? Um, so it was really an accident. Um. I randomly applied for an administrative job at a sustainability firm in Chicago called Mm -hmm. Delta Institute. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have any expectations about working there. I just thought it would be a regular admin job. But as I began to work on projects and understand more about how environmental science, engineering, planning affected my everyday life and my experience, I became pretty... Um, interested in pursuing more of the route in energy and housing. So I would say through that experience, I reflected on what happened to... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's a call back to another, to an old episode. But I would definitely say through that experience, I started to reflect about my own family's dealings with... um, the effects of redlining or uh, rent gouging, mm-hmm. losing two houses. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you say environmental stuff, people are thinking, oh, air, water, mm-hmm. saving polar bears and yeah. this nebulous thing called climate change. Yeah. But when you're talking about the intentional makeup of a city and of a neighborhood, <clears throat> that's what really resonated for me. Cool. It's, it's funny that you mentioned redlining. That was... um. You know, I don't post on Facebook very often, but I saw like a, um, remember we talked about uh, my my mentee um, that had the issue with the guy saying like, oh, hey, you know, if people got to know you, they wouldn't treat you in a racist yeah. manner. So there he is again, causing trouble on Facebook, like actually <laughs> trying to get people woke and recognizing that, you know, people of color are still discriminated against. So he made a, he put up a post about um about housing discrimination. And so like, you know, somebody posted in a response like BS, the Fair uh, the Fair Housing Act of 1934. I was like, so? <laughs> right. Like, redlining was still a thing. You know what I mean? Like, you know, redlining was the way was the way that the city of Chicago did things all the way into the you know 1960s, 70s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I mean, my family was one of the first to move into Inglewood when they moved in there. You know, because of redlining. And, you know, I even went so far as to say, like, hell, I, when I bought my house back in 2007, in 2008, my mortgage company was found guilty of mortgage fraud, you know, so, and, and excuse me, mortgage discrimination. So that Fair Housing Act really didn't mean much. Redlining and all that, uh, rent gouging, all of that was still going on. And you look at it, you look at, like, um, uh, Logan Square. Right. Where it's happening in a big, bad way, you know. So, all right, um, so... Absolutely. Um, When I was talking to my dad about some of the stuff that I've been reading lately um, through a course that I'm taking at ArchiWorks uh, that focuses on social construction, Mm -hmm. we read a lot of articles and texts about specifically those issues, redlining, um, discrimination, and like just violence and crime Mm -hmm. and the evolution of all these things in the neighborhoods. I mean, the jobs were disappearing Mm -hmm. and the intentional segregation of certain groups. And I called my dad one day and I was like, but we grew up in North Lawndale and it didn't seem the way that people described it. And he responded to me saying, no, it was like that. It's just that me and your mother had different plans for our children because he would take us out at night and we would see certain things happening um, that were unsavory. Yeah. Yeah. But we saw these things as 10, 11, 12-year-olds. So when you're in the middle of that, it becomes normal. Yeah. 
And it wasn't really until I had a decision about high school mm-hmm. whether I wanted to stay in the neighborhood and stay in sort of this atmosphere or get out of it and see what the world was really like. I don't think I realized that you were from, you, that you were raised in the North Lawndale neighborhood. Whereabouts, if you don't mind asking? Um, right off of 19th and Kedzie. 1900 South? 1900 South. Oh, okay. So at 19th and Kedzie, you can go about three blocks and you're in Little Village. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I went to, on the other side, I went to Westinghouse High School. So I was like 900 North, um, 900 North Springfield when I was, when a little bit of time we were on the West Side. So. Right. My dad went to Westinghouse. We have so much in common. We'll have to get him on the show sometime. We are are the warriors, the mighty, mighty warriors. (laughs) Juanita, you look like you wanted to ask a question. I've been over-talking you. I apologize. Oh, yeah. Um, So, um, no, I I mean, that's great. I mean, so much of our experience with the environment and um, our, I, I mean, the thing is you are like, 10 years younger than me and you know um <laughs> which is one of the worst kept secrets in yeah, the environmental field like Juanita is one of these young up and comers and then she's just gonna put it out there like that I know, know? <laughs> I'm like should I say it but um you know we talked about recycling and we talked about um when I when I was a kid and I remember in high school specifically like recycling was a thing and and um and uh, the, talking about the environment kind of broadly and we weren't we were talking about climate change I remember that and I remember talking about that in the context of science specifically which I thought was really interesting later because um, <clears throat> that isn't always the context now but um, so uh, I'm kind of curious being 10 years um, younger like is it uh, talking about normalizing things? Was it not really about the environment at all, or was it just it was normal? We were already thinking about the environment in another context. Well, I think I'm part of that last generation where schools were actually receiving funding to do like things that round out students Mm -hmm. like we had after school programs where you could still do things around science or math or dance or art um, for at least two hours after school and of course the kids loved it and the parents loved it as well naturally Um, but as we get later into the 90s you see that stuff sort of disappear so I can't say that during grammar school, and especially not during high school, um, that I was completely insulated from environmental topics. I just think that I didn't understand them to the extent of their impact, especially on communities of color. So we went out every now and then to the park and dug up worms and, and stuff like that. And I remember specifically in high school going um, several times to the Peggy Notabart uh, Nature Museum and seeing certain things there and exploring with my fellow classmates. So, and, th- and that was fun. Um, the exhibits were engaging and it was a part of our curriculum. But I can't necessarily say that that would be the case for the typical high school experience. You know, I went to a private high school. Sure. So the funding for that wasn't necessarily in question, and it was part of it. It was a Jesuit school, so Mm -hmm. you'd have that extra layer of religion, I guess, too, I imagine. Um, It was a... We did have that extra layer of religion, but I will also say that maybe after freshman year, they give students a bit more flexibility with that Um, because at the end of the day, the primary 
purpose of the institution is education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not religious education. Mm-hmm. So I think my experience there was great. Mm-hmm. And for other students, it may not have been great. And it mm-hmm. actually wasn't until our 10-year reunion that I figured out that some of the students who weren't of color mm-hmm. were still experiencing some level of segregation or discrimination based on income or yeah. based on the mm-hmm. neighborhoods that they came from. Right. Like, there is still a bit of that Anglo-Saxon versus Irish Yeah. Yeah. Sort of dynamic. Yeah, I mean, like with environmental justice, people think that it's just, you know, people of color versus non-people of color, but it's a socioeconomic thing. You Definitely. Look at, you know, out in the Hegwish, out in the southeast side, whereas primarily Hispanics and white people, you know, it's those are the people that are being dumped on in that area. Now, I mean, of course, you do have um, Augel Gardens, and you know, like, but that's west of... Um, west of uh, the Bishop Ford Freeway that you see the neighborhood is primarily black people. You know, east of the Bishop Ford, when it's the Hegwish community, Slag Valley, the true east side, that's primarily, you know, that's primarily Anglo-Saxon, primarily white and primarily um, Hispanic, you know. So, now you would have, given that address, you would have, had you not gone gone to a private school, you would have wound up at Farragut High School, correct? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, had I not gone to where so, I went to high school, I would have ended up at probably Whitney Young or Kenwood. I wasn't that's going to necessarily. You know, if you said good. we're going to have to get you up out of here. <laughs> see, see, you play too much. <laughs> so let me let me jump forward a little bit. So you um, worked at, you know, a sustainability organization, the Delta Institute. Now, you're, um, you mentioned that you're the lead strategist for the environmentalists of color. Like, tell me about that role and how did you kind of become, come into that position? Well, for environmentalists of color, I remember <clears throat> some of the earlier meetings and they were just solely focused around supporting people of color, which is still the foundation of the organization. Like, you can't do anything without the people. So when I decided to take on this role, um, I asked the founder if she would allow me to just sort of run with a few ideas last year. So I assumed the role in January of 2016. And done an amazing job so far. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I am a firm believer that if you see a problem, you can't just sit around with other people and let it stew. You have to be working towards next steps to solve the problem. Um, So adding to that support, um, I worked with an amazing team, which includes Bryant. I put my business out in the streets. I'm just a a member, you know. I'm just there, you know. You're on the website. You're already out in the streets. Moving forward. <laughs> how did how did you first come to be a? How did you first become a part of EOC? Who was I, first I was invited to a meeting, um, and it was held in the building where I worked, and there were about um, somewhere between thirty to forty people there, and mm-hmm. we all just went around and said our names and talked about what we do and a little bit of our experience in the environmental field. And it was a great gathering. Um, there were, and there was an opportunity to network mm-hmm. to find out what other people were working on, and just to strengthen some personal and cross organizational relationships. So those were the elements that definitely made a difference. And as far as finding support. On a personal level, as far as mentorship, I like that it was pretty open. Sometimes it can be burdensome for a person to be a mentor. Mm -hmm. You may have not just one, but several people coming back to you over and over again, especially if the problem that they're having isn't one that is easily solved. So being able to have access to a network of people Mm -hmm. makes a world of difference. Do you feel as though you found a mentor 
out of the environmentalist of color? Was that something that you were looking for or interested in? I feel like it was something that I was interested in, but I did not expect to find so many mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely several people that I email or talk to on a regular basis yeah. that provide me with a wealth of support, um, especially since I don't have like a hardcore science degree. Right. Um, so it, it really helps to have that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially from a strategy perspective. Um, it's definitely, this role is definitely not something that I have been successful in, in and of myself. Mm-hmm. So. A couple things I would beg to differ with that. One. <laughs> yeah. Two, I mean, like, so, you know, it, it's easy for someone to, like, you know, I've mentored people, and I say that in um, air quotes because I've done a really bad job of mentoring people, you know. Um, shout out to Sean Terry. Like, I'm sorry, man. But I could have done better. This is a learning experience for me, too. But, you know, like when you find somebody that's extremely talented, you know, they, people will kind of flock to you. And I think that's kind of the situation where you have so many people that you can't reach out to um, on a regular basis. But, you know, like I'm not here to, you know, those, you know. It's not the uh, the love-in session for Anthena. Everybody knows how amazing you are. So, like, going forward, what's the plan with um with EOC? Are you looking – like, how do you – you know, as the lead strategist, how are you strategizing – using your strategery, you know, like, is that a it's, a – it's a word now, right? GW made that a word. It's okay for me to say it, you know. So, um, <laughs> what's the plan for uh, 2017? Or like, you know – how are, do you have a specific plan in place to build out the organization? Or is, it, is, is it something that you want to meet with the um, leadership committee about? Or um, especially given, you know, like there's been a lot of panic around the um, Trump elect, you know, Trump being elected. Um, now, I mean, like we, I've voiced my, ex, my yeah. opinion about it ad nauseum. But, you know, like, do you think that there's something necessary for ELC to kind of um, organize around? Um, so I'm going to addressed the incoming administration, um, some of the successes that we have had, Mm -hmm. and then talk about the future. Um, A lot of people have a lot of concerns Mm -hmm. about an incoming administration, but I think that the the main thing that we need to be focusing on is that this is still a democratic republic, Mm -hmm. that the people still have... A voice, mm-hmm. and we are, of course, nobody really refers to us as people in society, but we have to remember that we're not just consumers and ratepayers and taxpayers. We live here. Mm-hmm. So I think that with the incoming administration, this is a perfect time. If you have an idea, if you want to start a coalition, if you want to protest or whatever, as long as it does no harm Mm -hmm. and you're trying to uplift your community, go for it because they are going to go for it. And they need to see that, again, the principles that this country was founded on that serve all people will be upheld. Now, we all know how it was written and who it is intended to serve. But we are at a changing point on a global level Mm -hmm. for how the world is working. So I think that to recover from the media blitz that we went through last year, we need to be having, you know, citizen journalism, blogs, vlogs, podcasts, and putting the word out there that what you saw it's not all that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as EOC goes, last year we saw some great things. Um, <clears throat> we had our first diversity and equity mini summit. We had a great on the table gathering. We had, um, even over the past couple of years, we've had some great um, networking events with aligned partners. Right. So moving forward into this year, we want to – oh, and last year we also accumulated more than 300 members, which is insane. Yeah, I think I saw on the um, Facebook page, you know, because I was doing my research, you know, before I came in, somewhere around 335 members on, you know, on on the um, social media, um, you know, 
Man, Abs- that, absolutely. That, that recruitment guy. Like, yeah, right? <laughs> man, um, amazing. So, yeah, around 330, 340 on Facebook, 94 on LinkedIn. Um, and probably from those two groups, we have about 120 people signed up to receive email yeah. um, notifications from us. So we're hitting the ground the best way that we know how. Yeah. And if I could jump in really quickly again, I mean, like one thing that I, you know, again, doing my research, I saw on the LinkedIn page, there's a lot of people that are outside of the Illinois region, specific, like outside yeah. of the Midwest mm-hmm. that have sought out environmentalists of color. Absolutely. And have joined in through the LinkedIn page, which is really impressive. Right. So when we make posts, especially to the website, mm-hmm. we have to um, specify where the opportunities are based because we are seeing interest from, as you said, professionals specifically in California, Michigan, D.C., Wisconsin. Um, So going forward with that in mind, we still, for right now, want it to be Chicagoland-based because Mm -hmm. that's where our feet are. Right. And (laughs) once we get our programs built out, you know, specific things around accountability (laughs) in organizations, um, performance integration plans. Mm -hmm. I could see that being a part of incoming um, employees' requirements because think about it. So many times for people of color, we're missing that person where we can say, oh, well, I I need a quick recommendation letter. Or, you know, I need a quick, um, I need you to show up somewhere for me. So if we have a network of people, and then within that network, we have a smaller group of people that are specifically interested in what you're doing, Mm -hmm. then that's somewhere we should be able to draw from. So that's, that's sort of how I'm envisioning that. Um, of course, we're going to still have that networking c- component mm-hmm. with um, members and also with ally organizations mm-hmm. because this is something that we have to tackle all together. Like the challenges that we're facing are not siloed. Yeah. Therefore, mm-hmm. we can't be siloed right. either. So that's the direction that I see EOC going in. Definitely more program build out, more networking. Of course, always more recruitment because that's the heart and soul of it. And just generally bringing more organization and structure to it that doesn't disrupt the natural flow of what we've come to treasure. Where can we find EOC on the um, on, on the internet? Like you mentioned, the uh, website. Yay! So <laughs> we are at www.eocnetwork.org. It's all one word. You're like, right? EOC underscore or just... EOC all, network, one word. all one word. So yeah, www.eocnetwork.org um, is where you find it. You know, see some amazing smiling faces. The fishing buddies trip. You know, yeah. the bass master in effect over there. You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned ArchiWorks. So how did you um, how did you get involved with ArchiWorks with that program there? You want the good version of the story or the real version of the story? Give me somewhere in between. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I first heard of ArchiWorks through a good friend of mine named Nicolette. Mm -hmm. And I attended her final review with her amazing, um, amazing group, uh, Karen and, and David. So they did a presentation about putting, you know, reclaimed materials in, you know, retail spaces and just the presentation of them um, transmedia, you know, sure. online to physical, whatever, and how that could affect sales um, and possibly boost that market. So it was great. Sure. So she encouraged me to apply, and I was reluctant to because I, you know, just like anyone else I don't necessarily think of myself as a designer I don't have a degree in architecture (laughs) you know I I don't do anything with spatial planning per se Um, 
So I was encouraged by several people. And by the time it got to the third person who said, oh, you should do this. I think you will be great at, at doing yeah. this. I was like, okay, well, great. With two days left to apply, let me put together my resume and a short portfolio of my work. And I got a letter back saying I had been accepted. So we've been in course now for four months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for so four what months. Is, what is, uh, like, I guess the overarching theme of... Right. The um, so the overarching theme is social construction. Mm-hmm. The target is to challenge the narrative of public housing. So we, mm-hmm. our cohort is specifically partnered with the National Public Housing Museum to do that. And so we have about 10 individuals in our classroom. We've been divided into groups of three or four. And so there will be three uh, showings of projects, uh, one for each group, on January 24th. So, and that will be at ArchiWorks at 6 p.m. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So my group's project that we chose to do is a game called Common Ground. And it's interesting that we chose to do a game because back in the 1960s, there's a man named Ken Christensen who also tried to capture the public housing experience in an interactive format. Mm -hmm. He said, why not use a game to really get to the heart of the situation and that you can use the truth to inform people in this format. Um, So we decided that we would do the same for several reasons. Both of those, and also when you're trying to have a real conversation with someone, Mm -hmm. you usually sit at a table. You're usually Mm -hmm. giving them your full attention, and there's a level of seriousness depending on what it is that comes with that. Like we can be serious in our play, just like we're serious in our work. So we wanted to call people together if nothing else, for awareness, even if you're not going to take action. So it's a table game. And hopefully, um, if it is um, picked up by the museum, it will serve that purpose. You'll be able to walk into a room, have a facilitator, who more than likely, hopefully, would be a person who's actually lived in public housing. And they would help facilitate the game and add in as they see fit. So that is the ideal vision of the game. We're not there yet. We're working on our fifth iteration of it right now. Um, But it has definitely been a labor of love. Again, I've learned a lot about my neighborhood um, and the things that I was insulated from um, thanks to my parents. And just learning about public housing on a national scale, international scale, will definitely change your perspective about the impact of poverty cycles and socioeconomics. So it's been an amazing, amazing eye-opening course. Wow. Yeah, I actually, so I lived in the Hilliard Projects when I was a kid. Like, my family moved out when I was around nine, ten years old, like when I was in third grade. But so you talk about people, you know, being insulated from certain things. My, My folks really you know, kept us insulated from, you know, the negative aspects of living in uh, public housing. You know, I mean, I can say that definite, definitively, like I didn't have any frame of reference of the quote unquote negative aspects of it, but I did see a lot of the positives, you know, the family, the familial structures that you had, like, we, you know, I lived on the 18th floor of the Hilliard Projects. I knew each and every single family there, you know, had um, relationships with them in some way, shape, or form, you know, and people don't, people ignore those things, you know, they just look at the negative aspects of it, you know, even looking at Gail Gardens and, you know, Cheryl Johnson, who, you know, I'm still really good friends with, you know, it's a community there, right. and people don't look at that aspect of it oftentimes, so I re- I'd love to see what the game looks like once, you know, once it's complete, so I'll be there, I'll definitely be there on the 24th, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious about that, like, so, so, um, it's for an audience that would be visiting, at, at least at this point, you're designing it for an audience that would be visiting the museum? Audience is always hard to tackle. Yeah. Especially when you have a specific 
goal that Mm -hmm. you're trying to reach so naturally, yes, for people visiting the museum, but also for people who have lived in public housing um, or are currently living in public housing, for people who have no idea what this means. Like, there are people... Who, who just yeah? Who, who you have, just think of it as like, oh, that's this horrible thing, you know? And they don't recognize that there are some positives to it, you know? It's just frightening and don't go around there, you know? And there are people today who don't even know what it is. Yeah. Um, one of my group mates did a survey early on. We were doing individual projects. He did a survey of a, a classroom mm-hmm. of high school students, and they were like, we don't know what public or affordable housing or subsidized housing is, but it sounds like a good idea for people who really need it. So even being able to, you know, if that were the project to encapsulate what this could mean in the perspectives of future generations, Mm -hmm. how could that impact policy? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the beautiful thing about children is sometimes they can only see the positive or the, the imaginative things that, you know, we as adults just get beat out of. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, they, they children get, are the future, right? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, they're, they don't come into it with uh, mm-hmm. with it, all these negative things that they've heard and half information and right. only having watched The Wire or, you know, the media. <laughs> or, you know, like, because I'm sure... Or good times. You right. know. Or good times, yeah, yeah. Depending on how old, I guess, the... Is. Yeah, I mean, the good times re- reruns come on everywhere, you know. So I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so yeah, so we've we've begun to to think about that, and as you were saying, Brian, um, we did have an iteration of the game that was very much focused on the barriers. So trying to capture those moments of joy mm-hmm. or those really positive community aspects. Um, it's quite difficult when you actually haven't lived it. And yeah. I, I will say that is one thing that I have taken from this course is that across the entire environmental field, across many industries, I think it would behoove people, especially those working in marketing, community, and economic development, mm-hmm. just take some time to listen to the people who are actually living yeah. the situation. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's another reason why we are sort of in this socio-political situation that we're in, you know, yeah. getting yeah. back to real conversations in the living room, at the table, without the television, getting mm-hmm. back to doing our own research mm-hmm. is going to be pivotal. And I, I really appreciate that part of this experience. I haven't had something like this since college. So, Or just, I mean, like, you know, looking at um how community engagement is done, you know, community, I mean, I've said this before, community outreach is done very poorly by municipalities. Community gauge, engagement is almost non-existent. Yeah. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, I'm, uh, I'm the board president for the um, Southeast Environmental Task Force um, located at 130, 133rd South Baltimore, sctaskforce.org. You know, you can go on and make a donation to the organization. Shameless plug of the episode. We it's we do it every time. I'm sorry. Um, speaking of which, this episode is brought to you by BIM for Better. <laughs> yeah, but go back to community engagement. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, my um, my good friend um, uh, Olga Batista, she's also on the board of the Southeast Environmental Task Force. She and I, we were on, uh, we participated in this um, community engagement charrette done by NPC and the Chicago Park District and a couple other partner organizations. Um, and it was during the middle of the day. You know, we were the only two people from the community that was there that lived in the community. You know what I mean? We're, yeah. Quite frankly, we're the only two people that were south of um, Garfield Boulevard, that lived yeah. south of Garfield Boulevard, that were in this um, charrette. And they, we have all these people that are saying, oh, we need to do this and we need to do that for that community. And that's not true community engagement. And that's not how you solve a problem. That's not how you come up with a solution. And that's part of the reason that we're in the socio-political uh, state that we're in right now, because there's not true, not true 
allyship, not true participation, et cetera, et cetera. And to add on to that, um, you know, we have an uh, an amazing instructor in ArchiWorks. Her name is Paola Aguirre, yeah. and she's she's done work. Um, you know, she she went to Harvard. She's done work with the Astor Gates. She's amazing, yeah. and she has really challenged me to sort of think about new ways of thinking mm-hmm. about things. Like, you know, besides just writing a to-do list, maybe mm-hmm. you're diagramming or maybe you're putting together a Pecha Kucha or maybe you're doing, which is 20 slides in 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's a real quick presentation. It's about six minutes. Right. Or maybe just finding new ways to communicate yourself mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. different mediums. And sometimes I think that... When we're doing charrettes or engagement, we walk in with like a giant post-it, maybe some post-it notes or whatever, and we expect people to know how to think through that process. So one thing that I've taken, especially from her example, is just what is the responsibility of the facilitator Mm -hmm. who's essentially acting as the designer in that course um, or in that charrette what is the responsibility of the designer to the people that you're trying to design for Mm -hmm. you know and how are you taking their input in Mm -hmm. and how based on what criteria like what, how are you deciding what's important? Because a lot of times a community will say something over and over and over again, and because mm-hmm. it may not resonate as important with the person or party that's trying to solve the problem, it will essentially get, quote-unquote, designed out. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, and so when you go back with your solution, it's not exactly what people thought it would be or what it's looking for. Now, I'm also a big advocate of you know, sort of setting expectations based on real things like budget, capacity, and what have you. So not making false promises to people Mm -hmm. is very important to me as well. And that's another thing that I've taken from the course and from some of my other work, like just being upfront with the community about what's possible um, is important. It shows that you respect them as residents, as people, and not just as people who are, again, taxpayers, consumers, ratepayers. It humanizes them. Exactly. And it does, it humanizes them. As opposed to commodifying. And it does not infantilize them Mm -hmm. as well. Because we don't need, you don't always need somebody to walk in and tell you, what to do yeah. or what's right and wrong or when you can and can't do something. Sometimes you just need people to listen. Right. Yeah, we don't need, cap, you know, we don't need a savior to come in. I, you know, I almost <laughs> yes, made a reference did. to that old Keep E-40 song, you know. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> it's a family podcast here. So, <laughs> but you made a comment about um, capacity and budget and with those, you know, like constraints, I want to ask you about EOC again. So, like, given the capacity I mean, that you have, I mean, I, I got a few questions about your involvement with ELC that I'd like to ask. So, like, given um, the capacity, I mean, I, I know a lot of it falls on you as the lead strategist. Um, I mean, like, how do you see that organization taking those steps that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, given, you know, you only, you have a limited capacity and the people that are involved have a limited capacity. How do you plan to strategize around that? Um, So there are some amazing things going on in the city right now. I mean, one of them being Shy Hack Night. Um, I know for a while um, Paola had a um, partner with her, L. Rommel, who was doing City Open, which which I was a part of. They ran it for like eight weeks Mm -hmm. um, last year. I, I don't know if they'll do it again this year, but it was great for me. Um, as I gear my career towards more of the equitable equitable development side of things. Mm -hmm. Um, But things like that, where you're sort of creating a hive mind Mm -hmm. or a mastermind group and you set a regular schedule Mm -hmm. and you make it mutable so people can come in and out because 
one thing that I've learned to accept about people of color is sometimes we do run into apocalypse fatigue, mm. especially if you have like a, a full family. Things, um, things happen. Explain. Well, let, let, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Juanita. Well, I, I also want to touch on the fact that these are people that are successful in their careers. Absolutely. And they have other, mm-hmm. you know, other responsibilities and, yeah. you know, um, we want them to be successful and to do the things that they're doing. But, you know, it's a reality that busy people are, you know, that right. are doing great work and are making an impact in their community, you know, want to be a part of ESC, but they don't necessarily have as much time as other people would. And that's the reason why I was sort of wanting to follow the format that I was just describing, because mm-hmm. regardless of whether you're missing a meeting because mm-hmm. your kid is sick or you're missing a meeting because you're serving on a board. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter. It, what it comes down to is everybody has the right to choose where and how they spend their time. Mm-hmm. And EOC is not an organization that's going to recreate the wheel. Right. Uh, we already have great folks doing amazing things, and we want to highlight that and highlight them inside of their organizations and on their boards and what have you, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So the function of EOC isn't to become an organization that is doing something repetitive. Mm -hmm. It's essentially at the foundation of it to provide support to people, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. high school students, all the way up to professionals, to activists, in what they're already doing. Yeah, yeah, I think you you touched on that earlier, talking Mm -hmm. about, um, you know, not wanting to replicate efforts and the need for people to partner, for organizations to partner on aligned issues and processes. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. the one thing that I would say I've noticed as a communications professional, that's what I have my academic background in, Mm -hmm. communications and economics, is usually in this field, among other fields, there's a communication issue. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point in my career, I was doing a small project just outlining what it takes to do supply chain um, Mm -hmm. sustainability. Right. And I was reading a report that was put out by one of the big four, um, and seven out of the ten bullets that they mentioned were all about communication. Where are you storing information? Are you meeting with all of the people that work up and down your supply chain? Are you aligning your goals? Are you all talking about um, the different components that you can possibly change in order to make things happen? Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, I feel that that's part of my role well, a big part of my role in EOC is to help create the space where this communication is happening so the organization can create the space for all of the magic to happen Um, Mm -hmm. because people are always going to be looking for jobs, starting Mm -hmm. their own things, um, trying to boost their careers, joining boards. And at the same time, we have to make room for that personal work. Maybe you're getting married or you're having children or you're buying a home. And these all of these things take time. So considering the person as a whole Mm -hmm. is going to be a a big crux of it. And as far as capacity, again, I'm one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't have all the solutions, um, but I do have Most of them. (laughs) (laughs) But I I do have a very made-up mind about how I envision the organization prospering. Mm -hmm. And I don't envision myself always being in this role. It's supposed to turn over. It's supposed to change and evolve and be agile. Um, So maybe I do this for X number of years and maybe somebody else who's whatever in their mid to late 20s or even in their 50s comes along and they're like, hey, we see these market trends and we see what's happening in our field. And this is how we really get in and tackle it and move with the times. Are you thinking about um, even sort of mentoring someone in that leadership Mm. role? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you may be giving that some thought already. Um, Absolutely. Because. Um, I'm, I have no like qualms about time mm-hmm. 
And you get to a point in your life where, yes, you can always be a learner and you can always evolve and move along with the times. But some things, especially with the way technology is moving, mm-hmm. some things just become too fast once you reach a certain mm-hmm. um, point in your life. And sometimes your interests change. Right. You know, I'm, I'm at a point in my life where my interest is changing. I thought I was going to be working at, like, a nonprofit as a communications director. And now mm-hmm. I have a completely different trajectory from my career mm-hmm. because I, I've come to understand different things about the sector. Um, as far as mentoring goes, I have already, <coughs> thank you to some wonderful people, spoken um, at colleges. She's already, she's gesturing towards Juanita when she says wonderful <laughs> people, you know, out here, like, you know, that's all right. That's all right. You know. I, I love myself, like Kendrick Lamar would say. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but but I've spoken at some colleges. I've had a, a group of students from Oberlin actually visit. Uh, Oberlin is in Ohio. It's a college in Ohio. You graduated from Oberlin? No, 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 right? no. Oh, no. No, I, I had a group of students from Oberlin College in Ohio visit mm-hmm. Chicago through Foresight Designs. Oh, yeah. It was a uh, Skylar Davis, one of them. You know, I don't care about naming names. Was this how recent was it? Because like, um, this was a few weeks ago. Oh, okay, okay. It's actually, their new yeah. round. All right. Yeah, it's their new round, and um, again, that's just aligning with an ally to really just open up the perspective about what it means to be in this field Mm -hmm. and be in any other category, really. Um, Or as you self-identify, to put it in a a better term, as you self-identify. So um, I have been putting my, my cards, my availability out there for the students that I have interacted with. Mm-hmm. And I'm always available um, to make time to talk because that's something that I wish I had when yeah. I was in college. Um, and not so long ago, one of my friends posted from college um, that she was trying to get a chemistry degree, mm-hmm. and the academic advisor told her, well, maybe you shouldn't really be doing this because, you know, the math may be difficult for you or whatever. And she didn't... Because she was a woman or because she was a person of color or both? Maybe both. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she, she got out with it. Mm-hmm. She got out with a degree in chemistry. And I can sit here and honestly say that maybe my level of mental resilience wasn't there when I was 18. Um, I didn't know a lot about going to college, about filling out certain types of tax forms, right. scholarship stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the first person in my nuclear unit yeah. to go. So being overwhelmed with that and the loans Mm -hmm. to come in and have a first year that is just science and engineering course heavy, throw in an English course for, you know, good measure, just to say we balanced it out. And then to go to a an academic advisor who looks nothing like me, can't Mm -hmm. relate to my experience. And they tell me straight to my face, like, you shouldn't be in this department. And I have other friends from the same school who have the same story. Some of them still have the emails. I'm pretty sure if I went back right. and opened my email, I could find the emails where someone in the math department told me not to try calculus ever wow. again. So this is yeah. really happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not just happening, to be honest, it's not just happening to black people. Mm-hmm. It's no. happening no. to Latinos. Yeah. It's happening to Asian Americans, yeah. it's happening to Indian Americans and Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, just like with the violence, the way the media is portraying it, you wouldn't even know that uh, in certain areas of the country, Native right. Americans are victims of police brutality at the same rate as right. African Americans. So we, we really have to get out of these polarized conversations mm-hmm. and start to realize that the melting pot is really just that right mm-hmm. and that we have to in our industries and in our fields of expertise we have to get on the ball and start g- going back for our resources which are our people and their minds mm-hmm. because if you don't have that you you really don't have a, f- a future yeah, yeah. So, you, earlier you mentioned um, <clears throat> apocalypse fatigue I was, yeah, that was um, one of the things. And I was we got totally about. sidetracked, but I'd love to talk about that. Can you, can you define that for us? Um, so, 
maybe this isn't Webster, <laughs> yeah. but ap- apocalypse fatigue, I think, is when the stress and pressure of simultaneous situations Mm -hmm. just gets to be too much for that individual to bear, especially if that person doesn't have a support system um, and doesn't have the actual physical or social resources to alleviate some of those situations. I'd never heard that term before, but, you know, that's something that a lot of EJ... um, you know, environmental justice advocates and, um, you know, uh, people working in that in the EJ sector wind up, you know, experience. I think they yeah. build and burn out. You know, Kim Wasserman um, at one point in time had to step away from El Vejo for a little while. I mean, because, I mean, you know, look at how long she had been fighting. You know, look at Cheryl Johnson, how long she had been fighting. Olga Batista out in the southeast side had been fighting for years and had to step away, you know, to be a mother. You know, and just to ha- focus on her own self-help, you know, I mean, self-health. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd never heard that term before, but that does make a lot of sense. And, I, you know, I think um, getting short. So let, let me ask one more question really quickly about uh, Oberlin College, the students that came here. Because I, I um, Peter Nicholson from Foresight is a really good friend of mine. And we should probably put a link to um, mm-hmm. Foresight Design. And then also um, you mentioned Theaster Gates, who's the executive director of the Rebuilding Foundation, um, or Rebuild Foundation, I believe is what it's called. So we'll put a link to that because he does some amazing work. Um, you know, uh, the Stony Island Art Bank is one of his projects uh, and a couple others over in the side, in the Hyde Park neighborhood. So we should probably put links to those. But um, And so, his, his work around ethical development is really mm-hmm. starting exactly. to take off as exactly. well. So um, I, um, I was invited to... Oberlin College last year um, for their their environmental sustainability program. They do like a conference, you know, like a careers panel, blah, 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 um, during April, early April annually. So I was, um, you know, honored to be a part of that and all that good stuff. And one thing that I noticed was like half of the students that were enrolled in that program were students of color. You know, so I was really impressed. Was that the case, like with the students that you met? Were there people, was there, um, was it primarily, you know, white kids or people of color or? Um, it it was primarily um, white, but white women. Okay. And I think that some of the questions that they asked us now, I could believe I could be wrong. Sure. Just to put a caveat there, because you can't really tell what someone's race is by observation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that's the way that that it looked. Um, sure. with, without me actually knowing. But the questions that they asked... Low-key low key calling me racist. I'm know, not calling like, you racist. I'm, just, I'm not calling you racist. It's like I'm uh, you know, judging by looks and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This racism word just has to go. I'm just, I'm just um, teasing. Come on, man. So the questions that they asked were really interesting because they asked specifically about being um, a woman of color. Yeah in the field and and what that means. And they also ask questions directly related to to the field and to energy efficiency and weatherization and actually a a lot of stuff around um, economics and how to make this stuff cost effective, which is great. Um, So I think that it doesn't really matter what, what the audience is, because even when I was at Prairie State College, it, it wasn't majority mm-hmm. people of color. I would say it was a pretty mixed room. Okay. But being able to speak to... The next generation. At some level of empathy mm-hmm. is important. So, okay, yeah, I'm not a white woman, mm-hmm. but I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. And there are just things about being a woman mm-hmm. that are going to be universal regardless. Right. I'm not a white male. Mm-hmm. That's not an experience that I can relate to. But if we're talking about a subject where you may be having an experience that in and of itself, the experience is mm-hmm. similar to mine, even though we may approach it different ways or have different perspectives, there isn't a reason that we can't sit down and have a conversation about that. And if it comes to it, agree to disagree. Yeah. Um, so to be able to speak to a diverse audience yeah. 
it's just going to be increasingly more important. But that takes, in my mind, now wrap with this, three things. It takes empathy, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of humble yourself and meet people where they are. Right. And as you can see, that's not something that is pervasive True. in our society. Um, you have to be authentic. If you don't have a passion mm-hmm. and a real thread behind your story, then it's not going to be accepted. I right. mean, and there are so many phony things coming across different types of media these days, it's hard to decipher what's real and what's not. So when you step to somebody in person, come with authenticity. And lastly, you have to be vulnerable sometimes to reach people. Um, Not everything in my life isn't perfect. Mm -hmm. I have failed courses before. I have been told what I can and can't do. Mm -hmm. And I have personally had to work on some things for myself where I was my own barrier. But if we're not able, especially as leaders, Mm -hmm. to talk about what we've had to overcome in in those three areas, then we're not showing people that it's okay to be themselves completely. Right. That's awesome. Um, As we wrap up, do we have a disabling... You know, we haven't thought about like you. You, you know what disabling is, right, um, Athena? It's the opposite from Columbusing. Yeah, yeah. It's the, the very basis of it is the opposite of Columbusing. I don't have a disabling um, topic. I don't have a disabling you know topic or issue um, today. Do you have one, Juanita? No, I, I, I don't. Athena, you got one. All right. Well, you know. Um, since I've mentioned her so many times, and we're going to get her, try and get her on the podcast very soon. Olga Batista, I love her to death. That is my my sister and um, partner in this battle for environmental justice out on the southeast side. I just found out that she's actually taking um, classical, excuse me, um, uh, acoustic guitar lessons. She's trying to learn how to play country music. She out there, she's out there disabling country music. So, you know, <laughs> shouts out to uh, to. Uh, Oh, God, I love it to death. Um, I want to give a real quick shout-out to the 2016 EOC leadership team, mm-hmm. which has been super dope. And I'm, I'm going to have to say her name, Melanie Moore, Yes, who yeah. has been um, super amazing. On our who, last, She was on our yeah. last recording, actually. Who, who so. has been an, a very good mentor to me yeah. and has definitely <clears throat> helped me keep a level head. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, yeah she's super great. awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, I noticed that there's somebody, you know, missing from that leadership team, but that's all right. He's, he's he'll speak for himself. You know, whatever. Like, <laughs> I thought you didn't want your <laughs> you business want, out. We're not gonna, we're not gonna argue about this. You see we're not gonna argue about this. Wow. But I am gonna say, like, as a member of that leadership team, you know, I don't think anything that we that we have done over the last, you know, in 2015 or 2016 would have been possible without you. Um, uh-huh. I could not see a, you know, I've been around the environmental field for a lot of years and I've seen a lot of very talented people come and go. Um, but none, I have not met any that are as talented as you are. You know, I, it's been a pleasure working with you. It's been an honor to watch you grow in your career and I'm really excited to see where you wind up, you know, and, um, you know, like I, you know, I, I love you to death and I, um, I'm glad you, you know, graced us with your presence on this episode. And as I've said many a time, you know, like, five, ten years from now, you know, don't forget a brother, you know what I mean? Like, after I've burned all the bridges and everything, I'm, <laughs> when I need a little consulting gig when you're out there killing it, you know, look out for the little people, you know what I mean, that looked out for you, or at least tried to, so well, I love know, you, man. I love you, too, man. Yeah. And you know, Juanita, I love you, too. Yeah. Do you yeah. see yourself as a designer now? Um, Not in the artistic sense, um, but definitely maybe in the realm of social impact. Um, and I signed up. Come on, I need a plug. I signed up for your course. Yeah, yeah like, well, you just low-key. You know. The introductory course to building information modeling. I will yeah. be there. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful to you for signing up, being uh, beta testing a, a curriculum. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us for our podcast and um, I'm very excited to see you know um, your career as it develops and you know um, I'm very excited to also see where EOC goes in this coming year 
So cool. with that, I think we're gonna have to sign off. And uh, follow you. us at uh, um, on Twitter at Dusabling. <laughs> At Dusabling, right? That's it. That's our handle. Yeah, that's the handle. Um, you know, I've said some inflammatory things from time to time. If you want to, you can contact me directly at at the story of B one on Twitter. You know, we can we can hash it out. We could talk about it, and you know, all that good stuff. But um, again, follow us on Twitter at Dusabling. Um, uh, WordPress. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, our WordPress site where you can. Um, as you probably already figured out, Just um, our, our uh, you know, the actual podcast recordings, audio recordings are on SoundCloud. But if you want to see um, links to any of the organizations or we've talked about or issues we've talked about, you can find those links at uh, shadesofgreenchicago.wordpress.com. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you.